A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is a special uh, episode commemorating the 10th yard site of the Rosh Hashiva of the Mayor of Nassim Tzvi Finkel, of blessed memory, and um, we'll take the opportunity, why do we have, what's so special about the 10th yard site? It's just an opportunity to, uh, time for some retrospective analysis and to share some more stories and to be inspired and put on the historical record um, a little bit more about this uh, great man who I was privileged to know uh, very well. And I want to refer our listeners to, uh, pre- had uh, previous two episodes on him, and I'll post the links to that as well, a couple of years ago. I think it was uh, pretty early on in, in Jewish history soundbites, um, a double episode on Reb Svi Finkel, the Rosh Hashiva. So I would like to propose something daring, perhaps downright presumptuous of me, but I'll do it anyway. As far as I know, it's never been attempted before. Um, because stories about rabbis are fairly common. Biographies or hagiographies or profiles of their lives are quite common as well. But what, but what is more uncommon is an attempt to take a step back and try to place the life and activities of the historic personage in a greater context of his era. And uh, I want to s- try to suggest the role of the Rosh Hashiva, Reb Nassim Svi, in a historical context. To a large extent, his 22-year tenure at the helm of the Mir Yeshiva, and to a lesser extent, his life and biography and his career itself, I think will be seen by future historians as an important chapter in the annals of the development of the post-war Torah world. Those 22 years were a decisive expansion in the developmental stage following decades of struggles of rebirth following the war. In a sense, what the Yeshiva was doing, I think, I think future historians will, will vindicate what I'm saying now, um, is that he was uh, projecting the message, uh, we have triumphed in the embryonic stage of development by rebuilding institutions and worlds which were destroyed, and um, now we can move on. Now it's already the 1990s, it's already close to half a century after the war, and now comes a period of expansion. Let's enjoy the fruits of of the labor of the survivor generation, of the ones who rebuilt, of 
of uh, you know like go let's go wild so to speak uh, in in a manner of expression of unrestricted expansion of tapping into the new accumulated wealth in, within the Torah community available for fundraising efforts to fund this expansion which was unavailable in the 1950s and 60s when everything was a struggle when everything was small when you had these great visionaries who envisioned the rebuilding and they laid the seeds and they planted the seeds and they built the original institutions and the reshiva comes along and he says, let's go ahead and, and take all that that was built with so many tears and struggles by the first decades after the war and with, 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 with so much vision. And let's expand it. Let's enjoy it. Let's, let's build it up. And becoming, in, in so doing, the yeshiva uh, became the architect of not only the largest yeshiva in the world, but perhaps more importantly, the first truly international yeshiva in Jewish history. In other words, um, where where Jews from all over the world, from literally from every country around, um, came to, and still come to, and um, with different backgrounds and different languages and, and and cultures, and it was a truly international yeshiva. It might be the first time in Jewish history that that took place, um, and that point might be the most revolutionary legacy of his expansion and open door policy. Um, which is very often overlooked, or, or at most it's mentioned in passing, but I think future historians will judge that differently because of how revolutionary it was at the time and how accepted it most definitely will be in the coming decades and in the coming century as the Jewish people consolidates itself in, in, in urban areas and in primarily two countries in the world, in the United States and Israel. So this type of Yeshiva model will probably uh, of the inter, of the international uh, yeshiva might might become uh, more common. Either way, these accomplishments might be viewed one day as watershed and pioneering steps in the larger scope of the rebuilding efforts of the post Torah, the uh, post war. Excuse me, post never is post Torah. It's post war Torah world in Israel and its effects on the United States and other countries as well. The reason I'm, I'm just proposing it as, as food for thought, and I'm not trying to say anything definitive um, for anyone who wants to jump on that and, and, and criticize or prove otherwise, because I feel it's too early to tell. It's only 10th, it's 10th yard site. It's way too early to have a you know clear retrospective analysis on someone's historical accomplishments seen in a greater picture of you know, we'll have to wait for a century or two centuries of rebuilding after the Holocaust. It was such a traumatic event that it's really too early to be able to 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 be able to divide these things into time periods. I remember uh, reading that uh, Zhu Enlai, the great uh, Chinese diplomat and politician, premier of communist China, and he was a pioneer of of diplomacy, of the ping pong diplomacy with the United States and and Nixon's visit, all kinds of things. He actually. Uh, died only a few months before Mao Zedong, who he had a conflict with in his later career, but that's for maybe an episode on Chinese history one day. But either way, once one time Zhu Enlai was, was a bit of an intellectual as well, was asked what are his views on the impact of the French Revolution on human history, on the development of the West. And, and Zhu Enlai wisely said that it's too early to tell. So he's, he's expressing that uh, 150, maybe even close to 200 years after the French Revolution. And he's saying a very, you know, very incisive statement that it's too early to, 
quantify the impact of the French Revolution on human society and development. So I think that for sure we can, you know, definitely, you know, assert that it's too early to measure the extent of the Rosh Hashiva of Nassim Tzvi Finkel's contribution uh, during his 22-year leadership and building of the Mir Yeshiva on what it had on the larger development of the Torah world and how could it be seen in, in, in its greater scope in, in the post-war uh, um, Torah world. This is all obviously aside, you know, from his personal warmth and of his the warmth of his personality and the relationships he had with and he enjoyed with thousands of people who knew him. And it goes without saying that this is all aside from his Torah greatness. I'm going to share a, a few more stories to satisfy the vast majority of listeners uh, who are presumably bored or at best at best or alienated at worst by my little speech about putting the Rashiv in historical context. So therefore I'll proceed to share some more stories and also later on some personal recollections of him. What I do have is some inter- an interest, a fascinating audio I received um, uh, from a listener. Uh, quite a way back, it was well over a year ago, a listener submitted to me a recording of a conversation he had with his grandfather, who was a close friend of the Rosh Hashiva, uh, who he co- kept on referring to as Nady Finkel. Uh, that's how the Rosh Hashiva was known in Chicago growing up. He wasn't known as Nassim Tzvi, he was known as Nady. And he was close to the Finkel family in his youth in Chicago. And he was even something of an older mentor of his. And he shared some amazing memories. It's a fascinating insight into those early early years. So I will now um, uh, proceed to share some of those gems from that audio that this listener sent me. Unfortunately, since he sent it to me such a long time ago, and since I'm, I'm very irresponsible about labeling things and stuff like that, so I was not able to track down... I spent some time yesterday trying to track down um, who, who this listener was and trying to contact him in order to ask permission if I can use the name um, in, for the purposes of this podcast, and I was unsuccessful. So um, I'm going to therefore keep it anonymous and change some of the details to protect uh, everyone involved, but um, because I was unable to receive or even find the find out who it was and ask permission. But I want to thank the listener out there for, at the time, graciously sharing these precious memories, and therefore, uh, and therefore, I'll uh, tell some of the stories. So, the uh, this 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 um, the, this elderly individual sharing the memories said that the Rosh Hashiva was in his kvutsa in Bnei Akiva, They're part of Bnei Akiva in Chicago, and kvutsa was like in the youth groups they had their their groups like kind of like the Boy Scout troops. So this was the Kvutsa Bnei Akiva, and, 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 and he was also his counselor at Camp Moshavah. In other words, the Rashiva was about uh, 12 at the time, and this individual was uh, several years older. And uh, they were, the families were close, they did business together. Uh, the Rashiva's uh, father had a catering company in Chicago called Finkel and Brody's, and apparently um, the, the families uh, did business with, with others as well. Um, so they were the families were very close, and and this fellow was also very close with the Rashiva himself. So I'm now going to quote some things that he says in his own words. I'm going to use the first person as an I, but I obviously don't mean I as in Yehuda Geber. I mean I as in this this uh, fellow who's sharing the memory um, uh, at the time. So he says one day when Nady was about to finish high school and I was in grad school at the University of Chicago. I got a call from his parents. Can you come up to our house? We need to discuss with you something very important about Nady. 
So I came, and I sat down in the living room talking, talking, and then his parents ask a big question. So I'm stopping for a second. So just uh, parenthetically, so his father, the Rashiva's father, was Ramir Finkel, who was who uh, this uh, this fellow describes as a very super sweet guy, just like the Rosh Hashiva Zatzal. And his mother, Rebetzin Serafinkel, who just passed away uh, recently, was a very competent and smart woman. Um, and the Rosh Hashiva got his sweet, his super sweet, his midas, his that good nature from his father. And for sure, his savor panamiyafis, his beautiful countenance, his beautiful face, the way he greeted people, his smile. Rameir was the son, of course, of the uh, of Rabbi Avram Shmuel Finkel, the Mashkiach of the Chavon Yeshiva, and he was a son of the Altar of Slabatka. So the Rashiva, who's named Nasan Svi after the Altar of Slabatka, was his great grandfather, and it goes through this Chavon branch, um, and that makes him, of course, a nephew of Rabbi Zayil Finkel, right? Rabbi Avram Shmuel Finkel and Rabbi Zayil Finkel, the Rashiva the Mir, were brothers. They were both sons of the Altar. Rameir uh, Finkel came to the United States. He, he learned, he studied in the Chavon Yeshiva, and he was in YU for a short period of time. And then he got married to Rebetzin Sarah Finkel, who was Sarah Rosenblum from St. Paul, Minnesota, where her father was uh, Shaykhet and a leader of the uh, religious Orthodox uh, community in St. Paul. And uh, they opened this catering first in Detroit, a catering business in Detroit. And then after a short time, they moved to Chicago, where they had the first kosher catering company in uh, in Chicago, which was very successful. He wanted to go back to Israel after graduation, but his parents wanted him to go to college like everyone else in America at the time. They said to him, you know Nassim Svi better than anyone. You know us. You know the world he's growing up in. We're asking you, and we're at whatever you, you say, will do. Should he go to college or should he go to study in yeshiva in Israel? I was overwhelmed by the question and immediately said that I cannot take responsibility for this question. I'm happy to discuss it with you and give an opinion, but I'm not taking responsibility. That's for someone else. Then they fine-tuned the question. We want him to go to college, marry, raise a family, etc. Studying Torah is wonderful, but we don't mind if he goes to study in the Mir Yeshiva in Israel to learn Torah, but only later, once he finishes college. I thought for a while. Hashem put these words into my mouth. I didn't reach this as a logical conclusion. It just kind of came out. I can't tell you what to do, but I can share my own experiences. The older you are when you go to college, the more you get out of it. Because college needs maturity, critical thinking, profession. The older you are, the more serious you are, the more it will be effective. On the other hand, the younger you are when you study Torah, the better you are, because the better off you are, because it will make a more profound impression on your soul. It will stick with you. You will remember it. The younger you are, the better your memory is. Studying Torah is something that you can much more easily master in your teen years than mid-twenties. We continued schmoozing. His parents thanked me very much. Next thing I knew, he was leaving for Israel. I'm not the only one who they consulted or listened to. They also spoke to Reb Herzl Kaplan, the older brother of Reb Mendel Kaplan, uh, who was in 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 in, uh, in 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 Skokie Yeshiva and later on in in the Philadelphia Yeshiva, as as well. Roberto Kaplan uh, Kaplan influenced many to continue studying Torah. Also, the Finkel family in Israel, especially Rebbe Yidel. Finkel, of course, had an influence on the decision of the parents as well. Uh, memories of um, of this fellow. That's a, a fascinating addition. And uh, you know, a couple of more books about the, their biographies that have been written about. The, the Rosh Hashiva. Uh, the books have lots of good stories. Uh, some of the background history is even true. Uh, though in my opinion, the book the books need a remake. I think it's 10 years later. It's time to redo it and expand it. There's a lot more stories and information out there. Um, and um, other couple of tidbits. 
I remember the Rashiva very often he would give what we would call as students in the Yeshiva the wave. And it was very completely uncommon, no out of, completely out of character. No other Rashi Yeshiva, to the best of my knowledge in the world, did that, shown that kind of uh, uh, um, kinship and, and you know closeness to the students of the Yeshiva. Um, he at the end of if we would dance him to his home, whether it was on Maitziyam Kippur or after or on Hanukkah or or something like that, or sometimes if even if he was passing by in his car, he would wave to us, and it was kind of like like a wave, you know, like a celebrity wave almost, and we would wave back and cheer, and it was really funny. And uh, I remember my uh, my roommate uh, who was very close with the Rashiva. When he was, when we were roommates in, in, in the dormitory, so he burst into the room one day and he said, Gebs, I got the wave. I was walking down the street, the Rashiva passed by in his car and he gave me the wave. And it was like a pride. You got the wave from the Rashiva. And, uh, you know, it was something, uh, something like that personal connection. We used to uh, dance with him on Maitzim Kippur. He would come to, to the dining room where we were eating the meal after the long fast and he would dance with us uh, and then we would dance him home. And the same thing happened on Hanukkah. We would go where he was lighting his his Hanukkah candles outside his home. A couple of hundred guys would come and attend the lighting, and it was almost like a you know a real like a Hasidic rebbe almost. And then we would dance, and he would be in the middle, and he would pull you individuals into the circle with him. And if he pulled you in, you felt like a million dollars. If he didn't pull you in, you thought maybe he just didn't notice. So uh, so it was like a real it was a real event every night. It was. Um, you know, he used to deliver his shiurim, his shiur kloli, in the base medrash, and it was a very powerful experience watching him deliver it, because he was very weak from his Parkinson's disease, but he was very strong at the same time. People would sometimes interrupt his shiur with questions. I remember one time, someone asked a question, and he was very assertive about, uh, the Rashiva was very assertive about his response. He said, You're asking a good question, but I'm asking a better one, so why don't you you know, wait till I proceed with the shir and, and you listen to what I have to say. Um, I remember on Simcha's Torah, um, he, he would, before the Icha Kafa, they would recite Moshe Emes, and everyone would jump up and down and, and jump up with their children and everything. And the Rashiva was confined to a wheelchair in his later years and was barely able to stand. He would, without fail, talking about eight, seven Akafas by night, seven Akafas by the day, he would jump up by Maisha Emes, not just out of his seat, he would literally jump, and we would watch him in awe. It was incredible. He would very particular about it. It was it was absolutely the most incredible. And every time that I jump with my children on Maisha Emes, I think about you know how he was able to summon the strength to go ahead and do that. He also had a custom, and the Meir Yeshiva keeps this custom from Kelm, from the Talmud Torah of Kelm. Back in Europe, the altar of Kelm would hold candles in front of the one leading the Hakafa. Talking about in in uh, in shuls in Eastern Europe where they didn't have electric lighting, and the if the Chazan was standing by the front of the shul leading leading the the uh, leading the davening, so then there would be candles, you know, to illuminate his sitter. But by the Hakafa San Simchasayra, so the Chazan is walking around the bima. There are no candles there. So the altar of Kelm would take those candles from the Chazan stand, and he would hold them in front of the one leading the Hakafa to illuminate the way for him. So the, the, the since the altar of Kelm did it, so it became like this tradition, this holy tradition. And the Rashiva himself would some occasionally in, in, in the mirror, they always honor someone with holding the candles in front of the one leading the Hakafa. 
and the Rashiva would take it uh, a couple of times, I remember, to hold the candles. Uh, uh, he would take that custom. He also, there was another interesting custom in the in the mirror, which I, I never got to the bottom of. I, I still would love to know the source for it, because, uh, you know, the Lit- Litvaks aren't big on sgulas, about, you know, making up mystical uh, things to do that would guarantee some sort of salvation. But they had this custom in Simchas Taira that if you held the tzitzis of the talis of the one leading the hakafa, then that would be a skula to get married that year. So therefore, the Rashiva Zetzel would honor older Israeli students of the yeshiva, and there were quite a few of those in the mirror, in their late 20s, early 30s, even late 30s or 40s, and he would choose them. He would he would spend time. He would actually devote time to to choose which older single student would get the privilege of holding the tzitzis for each hakafa, and uh, and this way uh, get, get, give them this gula of getting married that year. I don't know if it even worked, but this is what I witnessed. So I'm just uh, relating it. The Rashiva himself would take the oizer dalim hakafa, the sixth hakafa, for himself. Um, I remember his interactions with other great uh, Torah leaders. I remember once Rav Shmuel Arbach uh, was in, in the neighborhood on Shabbos afternoon from Shari Chesed. He had come to the neighborhood of Beis Yisrael. He had some sort of family um, um, Sheva Brachas or some sort of family Simcha. I don't recall what it was. So he took the opportunity to daven Mincha Shabbos afternoon in the mirror. And the Rashiva, as soon as he saw him from afar, he got up and he, again, weak. He's weak. It's his Yeshiva and it's, he's weak. He's Parkinson's. He got up and shot out of his seat and walked across the base measures to greet uh, Rav Shmuel Arbach. I remember at the Rashiva's daughter's wedding, the Kalavar Rebbe, Rav Menachem Mendel Taub, the Holocaust survivor, a great special man, holy Jew, the, the Kalavar Rebbe, who was much decades older than the Rosh Hashiva, he came and he danced at the Rashiva's daughter's wedding. And then he sang, the Kalavar Rebbe loved to sing, and he sang very sweetly, and he sang, he took a solo at the Rashiva's daughter's wedding, and then he stopped, he stopped the music, he stopped the dancing, and he gave this little speech telling us, the students of the Mir, how great our Rashiva was, is, and how much we should appreciate him. It was a very interesting experience. I remember the Rashiva's at Sel would lead the davening as the chazan on his father, Meir Finkel's yard site, which was Gimel Nisan, the third day of Nisan, which was lucky because... By Gimel, by the third day of Nisan, which was the Pesach Ben Hazman, the Pesach break, so there was almost no one in Yeshiva. So you were able to hear the Rosh Yeshiva because he spoke very low because of his illness. And if his if his father's yard site had taken place during the year, then it would be impossible impossible to hear him. But this way, we were able to hear him. It was a sight to behold him standing and leading all three tefillas um, for his father's memory. And the Rosh Yeshiva also actually would recite Kaddish on the altar of Slabatka's yard site. I don't know how many people are aware of that. He received also another custom that I think most are not aware of, was that he was particular to make a siyam on Erev Rosh Hashanah every year, because he did not want the students of the yeshiva fasting on Erev Rosh Hashanah, which is a common custom, because he felt it would be detrimental to their Torah study. They should be learning Torah instead on Erev Rosh Hashanah, and no one should fast. So he went down to the dining room after davening on Erev Rosh Hashanah every year, and he made a siyam himself, so that everyone should participate in his siyam, and they should not fast. Uh, during the summer, the yeshiva would go for uh, like a retreat, they would go for a few days away, and the yeshiva would come up and join us for Shabbos, and he would come up on Friday morning. And as soon as he came up, he would come be let out in his wheelchair, without his hat, without his frock, just in his shirt, and his one of his sons would lead him in the wheelchair, he would ask to be brought to the basketball courts, and he would come to watch us play ball. 
He wanted. We're, we're, we're all there for a few days. We're there and, and playing ball and in regular, you know, in sporting gear, shorts and t-shirts. And the Rashi would want to watch us play ball because he said, "I love to see the students of the yeshiva enjoy themselves during the summer." And uh, during that one summer retreat, I remember on Friday night they discovered that the soup went sour because the fire wasn't uh, on under the soup, and they told her they told them that we're gonna have to skip the the soup course. Because the soup is sour. The Rashiva overheard it, so he immediately got up and he said, The soup is Gavaran Zayer, ich bet Zodamashgiach das Ufstein und machen das Zis. He said, The soup has become sour, and I'm asking the Mashgiach should get up to speak, and he'll make it sweet for everybody. He had a very close relationship with the Mashgiach, Rabbaran Chadash. I remember once witnessing them Friday night in a long discussion, and the Rashiva remained standing for the entire time because the Mashgiach was standing, even though it was hard for him. And when they were finally finished talking, the Rashiva was barely able to, able to move, and his sons, his, his attendants had to literally drag him home. Um, he, uh, he, he, he gave all kinds of speeches. He gave his shir, shir klali, he gave his chumashir on Friday afternoon in his home, which was much more laid back. Uh, much more personal, and he gave speeches at events, at, uh, at yeshiva events, at yeshiva uh, on Hanukkah, on, on, on the Sukkot, on Chaspei Sheshev, on Siyumim that the yeshiva had. Very often he had this like uh, angelic face, this smile, this excitement. He used to give a short talk right before the the blowing of the shayfar, the tekiyah shayfar on Rosh Hashanah, and then, of course on Rosh Hashanah there's no microphone, so everyone would crowd around, pushing each other to try to get as close as possible. To hear him, you could barely hear him. And one time, he was speaking about how we realize that our lives are on the balance, and we're and we have to pray for the good of the entire Jewish people. He would always speak about davening for Yenim for the other person. So one time, he he yelled. He was talking very low as he was unable to speak louder. And then all of a sudden, he said, "Mendav Gibbon Agishrei," and he yelled it. He said, "You have to yell. You have to give a yell to to." To get the mercy of God and to pray to Him, so all of a sudden he like, you know, had the you know got that burst of energy to to say it loudly. I merited to enjoy an unusually close relationship with him from the first time I met him, which was born under unusual circumstances, and I cherish that relationship. And uh, I would always love to spend time with him and observe him and seek his advice on many occasions. He was a very special man who is missed uh, still missed very much until this very day. Uh, so this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at uh, Yehuda Geber at Yehuda Geber, sorry, at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, common sources, tourist trips, sponsorships, and the lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.